Hey, y'all can grab a seat. Go ahead as you're sitting down and uh, grab your Bibles or turn them on. And um, we'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, head to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4. As we're going there, I want to read actually a bit from 1 Timothy. Paul says this in his first letter to Timothy in chapter 2. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Um, This week, if you're not familiar, is election week, and so we want to just, as we turn to the word, uh, go to God in prayer. In, in 2016, I remember as we were facing the elections in 2016, uh, a guy called Scotty Smith wrote a prayer the day of the elections, and that prayer has just stuck with me, and so we're just going to let his prayer guide our prayer right now. So if you would, pray with me. Lord Jesus, before long we'll sing of your great majesty to Handel's great melody, and he shall reign forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords, hallelujah. Yet we don't have to wait for the season of Advent to begin. Election week is a perfect time to rise to our feet or to fall to our faces and worship you, Jesus, with peace-filled, joy-laden, heart-captured hearts. For you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, the ruler of the kings of the earth and everything else, no premier or president, emperor or autocrat, dictator or potentate is a threat to your kingdom or necessary to your purposes. Demons tremble at your name and stars sing your praise, Jesus. Fierce hurricanes become gentle zephyrs and placid lakes become roaring oceans, all in keeping with your purposes, timing, and glory. During this election week, we bow to you and cast our votes. The brokenness in our country, our hearts, and our world leads us to cry out, How long, O Lord? How long before you return, Lord Jesus, and finish making all things new? Until that day, we will seek to show proper respect to everyone, to love the brotherhood of believers, to fear God and honor the King, as 1 Peter 2 says. We will seek to live as good citizens of two kingdoms, the city of man and the city of God. We will seek to adorn the gospel, as Titus 2 says, to serve you faithfully and to love our neighbors. Whatever the results of this presidential election, as well as the many other officers, offices which will be held this week, we affirm with renewed confidence and profound joy, Jesus is King. Hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a salvation. You will reign forever and ever. So amen, we pray in your loving and triumphant name. And Father, we pray that you would grant us grace now as we turn to your word. I pray that your grace and the hope your word speaks of would be our anchor during these turbulent times. Jesus, we say with all the faith we can muster, your kingdom come, your will be done. Amen. 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 Well, uh, every soldier who has faced combat has a memory of writing 
um, what's kind of referred to as a in-case-I-don't-make-it-home letter. This is a letter that you would write as you're getting ready to go into combat, and it was a letter to be delivered to your loved ones in case you didn't make it out of that battle or out of that conflict. And I remember uh, 15 years ago writing this letter to my new bride of a couple months. <clears throat> and um, man, I still feel it like it was yesterday. It's such an odd letter to write because you're writing words that you hope your loved one will never read. My wife has never read this letter. I won't let her read this letter because by the grace of God, I made it home. But in that letter, I, I remember coming to the end of it and it was so weird because I didn't want to finish the letter. And as I'm thinking about how, how do I finish this letter, that could very well be the last thing my wife will ever read, hear, see from me, this side of glory. You're thinking about like all that you want to encapsulate, you want to summarize all that's been in the letter so far and, and pour out your heart and your soul and all the hopes that you have for her. And I remember doing this and it was very difficult in this last section of the letter to bear my heart and my soul and to share with her the hopes that I have for her whether or not I would be with her. Paul is doing something very similar in 2 Timothy 4 as he's closing out this letter to his dear friend and his brother Timothy. He's close to death. He misses his friend. And he's pinning the last letter that he'll write to his dear friend and brother in the faith, Timothy. So here's how we're going to approach the text uh, this evening. I, I want to flow through this text together. We'll just read through it kind of quickly, stop, make some observations. I want to make sure that we've got a handle on all that Paul's saying in this last section. And then after we do that, we'll come back through and make a, a few points that I think Paul wants us to take away from this last section of 2 Timothy 4. So 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 9, Paul says to his dear friend, do your best to come to me soon. Paul knows that he's facing certain death and he wants to see his friend before he dies. He says, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. You're going to feel in this section some real deep pain that Paul has, as friends, dear friends, have left him and deserted him. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, verse 11. Luke alone is with me. We know from uh, the gospel of Luke and from Acts that was written by this Luke uh, that Luke was a traveling partner of Paul. Luke was also a physician, and, and probably the reason he's with Paul is because Paul has suffered very greatly. He would have had uh, pretty serious physical ailments. And so Luke is both his friend, his traveling partner, and his personal doctor right now. And so he's saying, Luke is the only guy who's with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. That, that's a beautiful thing, because Mark is a guy who had bailed on Paul in the past. There had been some sort of reconciliation that had happened over the period of 30-some-odd years. And Paul says, hey, Mark, Mark, he's useful to me. I want you to bring him with you. Continues in verse 12, Tychicus, I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. <laughs> Paul's like, hey, Timothy, I want to see you, man. And when you come, it's dang freezing cold in this cell. Would you bring my cloak? And would you bring the books and would you bring the parchments? Paul has become like my grandpa who's long passed on, this kind of crotchety old man who's like, hey, come, don't you forget my coat. Bring me my books. I'm bored here. There's not a lot to do. Bring me the parchments so I can keep 
writing. More pain, verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. He tells his dear friend Timothy, I miss you. I want to see you. Come to me. Bring John Mark and watch out for Alexander the coppersmith. It's profound. We'll come back to that. Verse 16, more pain. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. He's not talking about his first imprisonment. This was his second imprisonment in Rome. He's probably talking about the pre-trial that would happen before the actual trial. And what Paul's saying is, at that moment, when I needed my friends around me, no one came to stand by me. And he's not saying nobody came to speak up in my defense because Paul is well aware, we know from the end of Acts, that this imprisonment in Rome is going to end with his death. He knows he's going to his death. So he's not saying they wouldn't even speak in my defense. He's saying, like when you're facing things like this, um, when I'm preaching, I, I can look out and I can see my good friends. And it bolsters your faith to be up there doing work for the Lord, to see your good friends. And Paul's feeling that. He's like, at this moment where I needed to look out and to remember, man, there's my friends in ministry, my partners in the gospel, none of them were there. Then he says this, may it not be charged against them, but the Lord Jesus himself stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles, all the non-Jewish people might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. I was rescued from death itself, Paul says. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. It's profound to me that he says he's going to bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom because Paul likely got his head cut off by Nero. What I think he's saying is that Satan's not going to win in his story. Jesus is. And so Jesus brought him, though beheaded, safely into his kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Then he closes this section. It says, Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Tropimus, who was ill at Miletus. And he repeats this desire. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sings, sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. So as Paul pins this last section of the last letter that he's going to write, what might he want to encourage us with? Let's ask that question. What might he, he's encouraging Timothy, by extension the church, and that means us, so what might he want to encourage us with? Five things this evening. Final encouragements from Paul. The first is, I think Paul would encourage you and I to hold the tension in our story. Here's what I mean by that. To not be defined by our pain, to not be defined by the suffering we've walked through, by the trauma that's been done to us or by us, but also not to ignore it or to numb out, to honestly name it and to trust Jesus with it. If you think about how we typically engage our stories and engage the pain that we feel, we'll tend to either numb out and downplay it or adopt it as our deepest identity, and you see that Paul doesn't fall into either of those ditches. We'll either numb out and downplay it, we'll say things like, I need to just get over this. Why can't I just get over this? 
we'll say to ourselves, if I can take it, I can make it. We'll say someone always has it worse than I do. We'll try to convince ourselves it wasn't really that bad. And in doing all of those things, we're trying to detach from the reality of our pain. And Paul's actually not doing that. He's honestly naming his pain and he's holding it in tension. But he's also not falling into the ditch where he adopts his pain and his suffering as the deepest and truest reality of who he is. We know we do this because we'll say things like, I'm worthless. This always happens to me. No one could ever love me. I'm unlovable. I'm unworthy. I deserve what happened to me. People will always let me down. Paul doesn't fall into either ditch. I want you to see how he names his pain. In verse 10, 2 Timothy 4, he says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. When he says that there's this guy, Demas, who used to be with Paul, who used to be a partner in the gospel, who used to be a spiritual friend, he's saying the cares, the concerns, in love with this world, he's deserted me. Now, the interesting thing is we have no reason to believe that Demas deserted the faith that he's bailed on Jesus. There was just a moment where he probably said, the cost is too great. I have these otherworldly concerns. Paul, I'm out. I'm going back home. And Paul says, he deserted me. Not he left. Not good riddance. I'm better off without him. He says, he deserted me. It hurt. Verse 14, again, he says of this guy, Alexander the coppersmith, and we'll come back to this one more time. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. He's able to actually communicate. Whatever happened with this guy, Alexander, it hurt him deeply, profoundly, and it wasn't physically. He says in verse 16, he's going deeper into the depths of his pain. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Paul uses this language that I think we would be like, hey, Paul, seriously, everyone Let's stay away from big blanket statements like no one is for me, everyone's against me. We'd probably pull Paul in and be like, hey man, it's not healthy to talk this way. But he's able to actually say, this is what it felt like. This was my experience at a moment when I needed people, everyone abandoned me. No one stood by me. Think of what Paul's doing as he names his pain. He's encouraging Timothy He's encouraging you and I to hold our stories in tension. He's encouraging us. The interesting thing is he doesn't give details to these pain, this pain. Not a lot of detail. Paul actually never does this. And it's because he actually invites us to process our own story as he processes his story. To hold our stories in tension. Second encouragement. I think Paul would tell us, don't do life on your own. Relationships are worth it. Think about the abandonment that Paul has walked through. I mean, he's saying it in this letter. This letter is like this beautiful mix of real hope and real darkness. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. We might expect that after the abandonment Paul's going through, after being at his first defense and being like, man, I have showed up time and time and time again for my friends, and they've all bailed on me, we may expect that he would say, 
Relationships actually aren't worth it. People will hurt you. You can only count on yourself and on Jesus. Don't count on your friends. But he doesn't actually do that. He, he, in this really beautiful way, doubles down on relationships. He doubles down on, I'm not doing life alone. I wasn't created to do life alone. We know this because he says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. He says to his dear friend, his partner in the gospel, I want to see you again. He says in verse 11, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. This is beautiful. Mark had bailed on he and Barnabas. We, we learn this in the book of Acts. And, and something's happened. There's been restoration. It's, it's taken quite a long time, it, it, it appears. But he says, hey, relationships are still worth it, so Timothy, bring Mark with you. He's useful to me. And then, like, he closes this letter just gushing about his friends in ministry, his partners in the gospel. He says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, verse 19, the household of Onesiphorus, Erastus, he mentions, Tropimus, Eubulus sends greeting, Pudens, Linus, Claudia. He just names all these people because he would tell us, Hey, man, don't do life on your own. Relationships are worth it. One of the distinctives at Frontline is a relational framework for life and ministry. To say that, hey man, we're not just mindless machines who've been given a task by Jesus and go out and do that task, but we've actually been brought into a family where we're in relationship with brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, and it's all worth it. It's all worth it, Paul would tell us. And we see from Paul that he shares the highs and the lows of his life and ministry with his friends. Don't do life on your own. Speaking of friends, I think the third thing he'd encourage us with is that we might receive spiritual friendship as the gift that it is. Have you noticed how Paul talks to Timothy? I wonder if there's anyone in your life that you talk this way with. He says in verse 9, again, do your best to come to me soon. He repeats that. Again, in verse, uh, in verse 21, he says, come to me soon. Do your best to come to me before winter. In uh, 2 Timothy 1, verse 4, he says this profound thing that I, I think is really difficult, especially for men to say to one another. He says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. He says, I long to see you. I, I want to speak for a moment just to the guys in here. Do you have friends, male friends in your life that you could say this to? I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I was watching this weekend. We didn't have power. The only thing I have downloaded on my computer is the only thing worth watching just ever really, and it's... Uh, the television miniseries Lonesome Dove. And uh, Lonesome Dove, the book, greatest thing short of the Bible that's ever been written. Lonesome Dove, the movie series, or the TV series, greatest thing that's been put on the screen uh, ever. And in that story, if you know it, if you don't, you should go home this evening and watch it. Uh, Captain Woodrow Call and Captain Augustus McRae, uh, Gus, played by my favorite, um, uh, my favorite uh, actor, Robert Duvall, 
they have this beautiful friendship, but throughout the whole series, they're never able to communicate to each other like about that friendship. It's kind of like, hey, men don't do this. Cowboys don't do this. And um, if you've not seen it, I'm, it, you had plenty of time, so I'm just going to ruin it for you. <laughs> Gus dies, okay? And um, it's, I'm so sorry, but I'm really not. If you haven't seen it, shame on you, okay? Um, Gus dies. And uh, Captain uh, Call, he is taking his body back to be buried in this grove back in Texas from Montana to Texas. And as he buries him, you can see the deep friendship that they have as he just sheds tears saying his final goodbye to his friend. Spiritual friendship is a gift and we need it. It's something that I'm growing in and that I'm really grateful for that there are men in my life in, in my life that I can say, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Paul wasn't like this at the beginning of his ministry. Um, this kind of love and heart and depth of soul is typically shaped in us through suffering together. Um, it's typically shaped in us through suffering, through taking hits in ministry. You, you see in Paul's letters that the tone and the flavor of his letters actually shifts. Galatians, one of his first letters, He's like, hey, I went to the apostles uh, and I told them, here's, here's what we're saying. And they added nothing to me. It's just really funny. He's like, they didn't add anything. We don't need them, you know? And then at the end of his life, he's softened. Suffering has a way of softening us. He's able to say to his dear friend, I long to see you. Spiritual friendship is a gift given by God. Fourth, I think Paul would encourage us to trust Jesus with our enemies. To trust Jesus with our enemies, he says in verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. To Timothy, he says, beware of him, Alexander yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. This is fascinating to me. To, to be honest, I have a hard time knowing exactly what to do with this. Because I think what I would say, whatever's happened with Alexander, we don't know who this guy is. But whatever's happened, it's clear that he's done great harm to the cause of Christ, that he opposed the message of Christ. Paul's able to experience his pain, to go to the depths of it, and to be able to say and to write his name in Holy Scripture, Alexander, and just so you don't mess up the guy I'm talking about, the coppersmith. He, he like if social security numbers had been a thing, then he would have written it down here probably. Last four of his social here it is. He did me great harm. He doesn't say he did the cause of Christ. He says he did me great harm. Paul doesn't downplay how this has hurt him. He says it happened to me. And Paul knew he didn't need to take revenge. Because he says Jesus is actually going to repay him according to his deeds. He says the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Here's what Paul is able to do. He's able to know that one way or another, justice will be served towards this Alexander the coppersmith. In one of two ways. Either Jesus is going to return and the wrath of Jesus is going to be poured out on Alexander the coppersmith. And he's going to spend an eternity separate from Jesus in eternal conscious torment. Or... He's going to repent of his sins, turn to Christ, and the punishment for what he's done that hurt Paul so deeply is going to be poured out and exhausted on the shoulders of Jesus. Either way, we trust Jesus with our enemies. Fifth and finally, I think he'd encourage us 
to embrace gospel goodbyes. He says in verse 10, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Verse 12, Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. Paul says goodbye a lot. Verse 19, greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. And I left Tropimus who was ill at Miletus. Paul's life was marked by a lot of very painful goodbyes. But they were goodbyes for the sake of the gospel. Timothy is now at Ephesus, not with Paul, because Paul said a gospel goodbye. Paul said, for the sake of the gospel, Timothy, I want you to go to Ephesus. His life is marked by saying goodbyes for the sake of the gospel. And he does it, and we do it because Jesus is worth it. Our mission statement is right back there, that we want to multiply gospel communities. We say gospel goodbyes when we multiply gospel communities. When we do this is we multiply community groups where we say what would be best is for this community group that's formed and we know one another and we know each other's lives and mess and stories and all of that. Let's not grow. Let's not let new folks in. Let's not plant other community groups. Let's just keep this comfortable thing. Every time that we say, no, let's multiply this community group. Jesus is worth it. The gospel goodbye is painful, but it's worth it. Gospel goodbyes are why we multiply congregations. There's a real beauty in y'all coming out here to Yukon. There's pain also. Downtown feels that pain. You guys feel that pain. We say gospel goodbyes because Jesus is worth it. It's why we plant churches. It's why we said goodbye to Sujith and his family and sent them to India. It's why we said goodbye to Tim and to Patty and their family and sent them to Iowa. And this is always marked by tears. There's this tension of joy in sadness when we say gospel goodbyes, but they're beautiful and they're worth it because Jesus is worth it. So as Paul's finishing his race, he's passing the baton to Timothy and he's cheering Timothy and he's cheering us on saying Jesus is worth it. Hold the tension in your story. Don't do life on your own. Relationships are worth it. Receive spiritual friendship as the gift that it is. Trust Jesus with your enemies. Embrace gospel goodbyes. I think there's an objection that forms, at least it does in my heart, as I even think of this. And we might say to Paul, well, yeah, Paul, that worked for you, comma, but. That worked for you, but you don't know my story. That worked for you, but you don't know the pain that's been caused to me by my enemy. That worked for you, but you don't know how many relationships I've lost. I don't know if they are worth it. That worked for you, but I can't say goodbye one more time to one more friend. There are all kinds of reasons why we can't do this. It doesn't make sense. It feels like it's too hard. And really, it is too hard. It is too hard. So let's ask the question, and we'll kind of close with this question. How does Paul come to this perspective in his life? where he's going for it with relationships and he's trusting Jesus within his enemies and he's saying goodbye again for the sake of the gospel. How does he come to this perspective? First, I think it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. When he's able to say, 
Everyone deserted me. Nobody stood by me. May it not be held against them. I'm guessing he didn't come to that conclusion overnight. It probably took some time processing his story before he came to that conclusion. It doesn't happen overnight. Second, remember, Paul's at the end of his life. Suffering has produced in Paul both maturity and perspective. Suffering has a way of doing that. So here's what I think the key is to both this section and to Paul's life. I think this is the key to this last section of the scripture and to Paul's life. He says in verse 16, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Paul's able to recognize that everyone else may have deserted him, but the one constant in his life over and over and over was that Jesus was by him. Jesus was strengthening him. It's why he can say in Acts 20 verse 24, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify, to witness to, to herald the good news of the grace of God. In the midst of all the pain, all the heartache, all the suffering, physical, spiritual, emotional, the abandonment of friends, feeling completely alone, all that Paul's walked through, Jesus stood by him and strengthened him. And at the end of his life and his ministry, his perspective is, Jesus is worth it. Jesus stood by me and Jesus is worth it. Paul's friends left him alone, but Jesus never did. Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's the lover of Paul's soul, and he's the lover of your soul and my soul. We'll be lonely this side of glory, but never alone. Jesus stood by Paul, and he strengthened him. And follower of Jesus, he stands by you, and he strengthens you. And so these encouragements you're able to do, not because you can just muster up the strength, you can just gut through it. That's not what Paul would say. Paul would say, if you don't feel like you can do this stuff, not work harder, try better, do more, he would say, Jesus is with you. He'll give you the strength. He's standing by you. So as we close out this letter, for those of you who are in Christ, just ask the question, what do you need from Jesus today? He's standing with you right now in this moment. He's with you. He's for you. He longs to strengthen you. He's near. He's sent his spirit to dwell within you and to strengthen you. And so you can cry out with as much or as little faith as you have. Jesus, here's how I need you to strengthen me. Here's how I need you to stand by me. For those of you still searching, if you would say, I, I, I don't know what I believe about this. I'm not, I'm not sure about all of it. No one's going to hurry you. No one's going to rush you. Jesus doesn't do that. I would say to you that if 2020 has showed us anything, it's how utterly powerless we are to control anything in our own lives, much less anything external to us. Jesus wants to stand with you. He wants to strengthen you. He's for you. 
and we would love to talk with you about what it looks like to follow Jesus, to say yes to Jesus, to be strengthened by Jesus. The grace of Jesus be with you all. Friends, let's...